Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and our look at the Lord's Prayer, continuing the second petition from last week and going on to the third and fourth petitions here today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, you gave our listeners homework last week. How dare you on such a show as this? I don't think we've ever had that in the history of Concord Matters before, but you did. You gave us homework, things to think about. And perhaps maybe uh, some might even think we were a little harsh last week and kind of talking about, you know, we were talking in the first petition of how we hallow God's name. And, and that part of that is that we would have right doctrine and that we would teach right doctrine and rebuke false doctrine where necessary so that people not be led astray. And then also we got a little pushy with some kind of kitschy phrases that come in there. And as we got into the second petition then as well, which of course is thy kingdom come, we built upon that a little bit more about, you know, this kind of tension and things that you hear a lot about and American evangelicalism and those sorts of things where we feel like it's up to us to grow the kingdom. And I think you gave us a right teaching there that the second petition just beautifully states there for us. This will happen even without our prayer. God's going to grow his kingdom, right? The very stones, as the Psalms say, will cry out if we don't. And so this is certainly not up to us. But then how then might we understand, if you must use the phrase, or as I would just encourage that we think catechetically about this, what is the positive way in which God's kingdom does come and grow through us? How is this prayer answered? Continuing once again, our teaching on the second petition that we began at the end of the show last week. Go ahead, Pastor Bessel, and take us away with our catechesis lesson here, continuing the second petition. All right. Great to be with you again, Sean. Uh, yeah, that homework that I gave everybody for last week, hopefully uh, uh, everyone got a chance to really dwell on that and think about it, because you're right. You know, it, it might seem like we're being a little bit mean-spirited to take this phrase to build the kingdom or grow the kingdom, and it might seem mean-spirited to say that's not a helpful way of thinking about things because everyone's just very well-intended in trying to show that they want to, if you will, promote, advance, cheer on, confess the life of the church. But as the homework, uh, you know, as I asked everyone last week, think again about what you could possibly bring to the table to build the kingdom. And as you think about that, and hopefully as you thought about that throughout the last week, it will show you how much we should cherish and love and thank God for the fact that he is the one who builds and sustains his kingdom and church. 
So what did, what did everyone come up with last week? How can we build God's kingdom? Certainly, you know, we can give of our talents, our treasures, and all these things. And what do these things do, and what do they help with? And yet, how does that compare with what God himself has promised? So how would we describe it? What would it look like if we help build or grow the kingdom? Would it be that we help make people feel welcome? Nothing wrong with that. But does that transition into sort of, if you will, entertaining them, making them feel invited or worthwhile, making them feel important, or simply making the numbers go up so that we start looking at everybody as if they are numbers in the pew and parts of the stats of the church? Is that really, as well-intended as we are, is that really a loving way to view the life of the congregation? What can we add to the life of the church that God himself has not already provided? Luther says it this way in the large catechism, and this is why I want to do that little exercise, because compare any, the very best that whatever the dear listener could think of, compare that very best of what you could think of with this line from Luther. Luther says, quote, we pray for an eternal, inestimable treasure and everything that God himself possesses. (laughs) Think about that. Does the Christian, by his own efforts for Jesus, or his own kingdom-building efforts, does the Christian in the pew or the Christian in the pulpit have any self-authority or self-power to give his neighbor, quote, everything that God himself possesses? No. Going on, Luther says, this is far too great for any human heart to think about desiring if God had not himself commanded us to pray for the same. Notice that we don't even think to desire it. And so if you and I are told that Jesus needs us to help grow the kingdom, think about this. If we don't even desire the inestimable treasures that God gives, then we're immediately going to think of kingdom-building goals and tactics that are far less and more earthbound. For we don't even think to desire the treasures of God if God had not himself commanded us to pray for the same, as Luther says. And by praying, think about this reality, by praying for it, we're admitting that it's not in our capacity to produce it for ourselves, or it's not even our place to produce it for ourselves, but to simply hallow God's name by desiring that he bring his kingdom graciously among us also. Going on, Luther says, quote, But because he is God, he also claims the honor of giving much more and more abundantly than anyone can understand. He is like an eternal, unfailing fountain. The more it pours forth and overflows, the more it continues to give. Now, before I finish off this quote, notice what Luther just said. God claims the honor of giving more and more abundantly than anyone can understand. We actually take away the honor from God and his Christ when we try to place it on ourselves to be the ones to do God the honor of building his kingdom for him. Sort of like when uh, David sort of lamented that God did not yet have a house while all the people were in houses. God did not yet have his temple. And God sort of lovingly chastises David and says, oh, are you going to be the one who builds me a house? In the same way, he says to us, No, this is not about you building the kingdom for me. 
I have already built the kingdom with nothing short of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're going to supposedly add to it? Right? This is what we have to understand as those who are sadly, uh, we easily buy into this because it sounds so well-intended that we easily buy into these sort of pietistic notions of saying, look what we're doing for the kingdom, look what we're doing for God, when really the way to rejoice in God's kingdom coming is to simply rejoice in being the beneficiary of it and desiring to share with our neighbor that they get to be a beneficiary of it too. In fact, as this quote goes on, Luther says, God desires nothing more seriously from us than that we ask him for much and great things. In fact, he is angry if we do not ask. So last week, I think I mentioned that quote of do not go to church, be the church. But it's when we go to church that we appeal to God and petition to God and we ask God for these things. That doesn't make him angry. He's angry when we don't believe that he would want us to depend upon him, but rather that we do things for our own self and our own salvation, our own righteousness. That's not the kingdom God has established. God is angry with those who want to put it in their own lap to grow and build the kingdom as if it depends on them and not on appealing to God's goodness in Christ Jesus. And so again, I say to every listener out there, if your pastor is intentionally or even unintentionally burdening you with the notion that we are growing or building the kingdom for Jesus, very gently and lovingly and patiently, call that pastor to repentance. Pastors are not above needing to repent at times, but gently and kindly and humbly point out to that pastor that he is preaching against our confessions, against the Lord's Prayer, against the Second and Third Commandments, Gently, humbly, lovingly call him to repent and to refocus the life of the congregation on what God in Christ freely gives. As our hymn even says, that beautiful hymn in our Lutheran service book, the gifts Christ freely gives, he gives to you and me. Right? This is the beauty of the life of the church. The life of the church is not so much about all of the sweat, tears, and labor and toil of our own ability to please God but it's about the fact that Christ spared nothing, not even his own life and his own blood, to raise up the church and build the church, establish and maintain and safeguard the church forever. Luther laments, he says, it's a great shame and dishonor to God if we, to whom he offers and pledges so many inexpressible treasures, despise the treasures. So again, dear listener, God's kingdom comes to you each and every Sunday in the inexpressible treasures of word and sacrament in that divine hour of heaven on earth. Do not despise that. Do not turn your service into a man-made kingdom-building effort. Simply rejoice that you are recipient of the greatest gifts God himself knows to give. That's how you take part in the service. You don't take part in the service by saying, look how busy and active I am. Look how much volunteerism I get to do. You get to take part in the service by being served, by receiving the gifts of God, to be recipient of God's inexpressible treasures. And that's why, honestly, I sort of wish that Luther would have said here what he had so plainly said in the former petition. Remember, in the former petition, we heard him say in the large catechism, here we pray for everything commanded in the second commandment. And really, he could have said the same thing here about the third commandment. This petition is nothing other than asking God to help us cherish his word, 
his sacraments, the divine service, as it all strengthens us to live in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another, as we await the kingdom to be revealed to us by sight on that great and final day. And so to your question, Pastor Smith, and just saying, you know, how do we go about, quote unquote, building God's kingdom? How do we understand that in a good, positive light? We simply do it by rejoicing that God is building his kingdom, that God is at work wherever word and sacraments, uh, wherever the word is taught purely and the sacraments are administered rightly, God is building his church and we should rejoice in that. We should never take it for granted. We should never, as COVID has taught us, we should never assume that it's just always going to be there and that our governing authorities are always going to make it easy for us to gather around word and sacrament. We should never miss a few Sundays and then come back with some question of, well, what did I miss? As if you don't every Sunday that you're absent miss God himself working to sustain and care for his church in inexpressible ways. And so love the kingdom of God for what it is, not for what you want it to be or think that you by your strength could make it. For what it is, is infinitely greater more holy, more divine, and more bounteous than you or I could ever make it. And not to delay us here too much, as last week we had to continue the second petition here to this week because I delayed us thinking a little more about the first petition. And so I hate to keep doing this, but just, again, I think it's worthy of our contemplation here that as we think about this too, I think that's an excellent quote to consider. What are we saying about that quote that you brought in that pithy saying that's out there, don't just go to church, be the church. You know, if we think about this rightly, according to the second petition, we can certainly say then that going to church is where God's kingdom comes among us in his very body and blood, in his word, right? The word and sacrament is the God's kingdom coming to us. And that certainly is going to be lived out. And so we can also Add to that then that as we faithfully serve in our vocations, and I might add chiefly when we have family devotions, right? When we have God's word permeating our family life, that's a great way that God's kingdom is lived out among us. And a lot of times that is not well factored into a lot of what is said out there in uh, American evangelicalism with pithy phrasing, like don't just go to church, be the church. And it's all about kingdom building and things like that. It's usually more about marketing techniques and trying to get those outside the church. And and there's nothing wrong with that. We want to minister to the whole world, right, and proclaim God's truth. But if we're ignoring our own families, if we're not ourselves being engaged in receiving God's word and sacrament, then what kind of kingdom are we building out there with those, quote unquote, outside the church if we ourselves are not? And so it sets up a lot of false dichotomies. And I just... I could get all my whole soapbox here, uh, but you've got my you've got my thinking going and my blood going, and so I just wanted to kind of add to that here a little bit. But I think we're going to see the next thing here then too, as we get into the third petition, that it's the final of the thy petitions, and kind of offensive to our sinful nature, if you will, but then also our American sensibilities of thinking that we have to do things or that we can add to what God is doing. I think as you've made the point with the previous two petitions that this one can be really difficult for us as well. So I'll go ahead and read it here from the small catechism with the explanation as well. And then you'll go ahead and give us our catechesis lesson on it. So this is the third petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. All right, thus far, the third petition. Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us away here. We might have to break this up over the break, but go ahead and begin our catechesis lesson here on the third petition. Okay, well, I think the first thing to say here, and and you're right, there's a lot to discuss in each of these petitions, and so uh, we can only fit so much in. But the first thing, I think, when we consider this petition, we ought, as I hinted a few episodes ago when we sort of did the overview of the Lord's Prayer and how it tied in with the Ten Commandments, we ought, again, try to do what we can to take the breathing rest out of this petition and relearn it in one full phrase, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, In fact, in the Greek, if you were to look at the Greek, the more woodenly translated word order, and for those uh, you know Greek scholars out there, they know that word order doesn't always mean everything, but it is simply interesting to note sometimes that there is a word order that the Holy Spirit chose when laying down the Greek using Greek grammar rules. And so that word order doesn't mean everything, but it also doesn't mean nothing. And so when you look at the word order and how it would be woodenly translated using that word order, it would read something more like, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so also upon the earth. And that emphasis is certainly then helpful in reminding, just as we said when taking out the breathing mark, that it's about God's will being done on earth, which, as we'll see, gives us shades of the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Those are the ones that God has given vocation and authority over you, and by extension then, those who get their authority from father and mother, government, pastors, teachers, all those other vocational authorities, this is how God's will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. But when reading Luther's explanation, the small catechism has almost a joyful, defiant tone when he talks about the fact that God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. There's almost a joyful defiance about that. As you transition into the large catechism, interestingly, the large catechism seems to read with a decidedly more somber tone. Listen to what Luther says, a little bit of an extended quote here. He says, quote, We must firmly keep God's honor and our salvation and not allow ourselves to be torn from them, for there will be strange events if we are to abide in God's will. We shall have to suffer many thrusts and blows on that account from everything that seeks to oppose and prevent the fulfillment of the first two petitions. And Luther's quote. So, in the small catechism, it almost joyfully teaches that God is not just on the defensive, he's on the attack, he's going to prevent the devil and the world and our sinful flesh from hindering his will and his kingdom, whereas the large catechism's tone is very much the idea of saying, you know, in the practical reality of the fallen world out there, it's often going to feel like we're on the defensive. I think every listener, every Christian out there knows that feeling that we often feel like, man, things just are not going the way that I would have them go. And it almost makes the faith more difficult to uphold because we want to always see our God win, and we always want to be in the driver's seat and in control. And when things seem to be 
uh, and the waves seem to be crashing against the church in a way that almost makes things feel like we're out of control a little bit, then we start to wonder if God's kingdom is actually working among us, or if God's name actually is holy, or maybe even if it's being hallowed rightly, and maybe we say, gee, if we had hallowed it rightly, then this bad stuff wouldn't be happening. And so it's really interesting to study both tones that Luther uses here, and both tones are necessary for a good understanding. God's will is under attack in this world, we have to admit that, and let's not be ignorant to that or complacent regarding that. You know, we sort of talked uh, in the last episode about how we should actually be praying that God would throw down enemies of the gospel from their places of prominence. That's a good, holy prayer. We're not pacifists, in a sense, when it comes to God against the devil and God against evil and God against anything that would harm his gospel and harm his church. And so it's a true spiritual warfare that we're in. It's carried out in daily life. Remember, the apostle talks about this. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the spiritual darkness. And yet, how is it going to look in daily life? It's going to look like flesh and blood wrestling. And yet, right underneath the surface, it's spiritual warfare. And so we have to be uh, we have to be aware of that and not so complacent regarding that. And nevertheless, here's the joyous tone of the small catechism. Our victory is certain. God does break and hinder every evil plan and purpose through instruments and according to his plan and timing that you and I might not choose, might not be my will that is done, but we have the promise God's will is going to be done even if to my own eyes, it doesn't seem to appear to be what I want it to appear to be. Nevertheless, God is going to make sure that his kingdom is safeguarded, that his name is hallowed, that his kingdom comes among us in the life of the church. In other words, God's will does, and this is an important comfort for Christians, God's will does include vindication for his church. And that's not something we talk about very often because it, again, it can, oh man, that almost sounds mean-spirited. Why would you want vindication? Don't we just want love and joy and everyone getting along together? But God promises vindication for his church because his church lives according to the holy and good will of God and his Christ. And so anything that opposes that, which is God's holy will and good will, can't be called good or something that we should defend or something that we should be sympathetic about and feel bad about when it loses the war. We should cheer when it loses the war against God. And so the life of the church should be comforted by the promise that there is vindication for the church and vengeance upon God's enemy. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, the scripture says. Of that we should be certain, and that should actually bring us some confidence and joy. But it's him, and this is, an, this is an equally important point, it's him and not his church who will carry out his vengeance. It's his timing according to his plans. Uh, of course, non-Christians all the time will point to the Crusades and they'll say, oh, look what evil the church has brought against the world. But it's not ours to carry the sword, and it's not ours to fight with the sword of the world's weaponry, but rather our weaponry is the word of God. Our weaponry are his precious tools, his word and his sacraments, the call to repentance, the joy of sharing the forgiveness of sins. And so when we speak of the church militant, we don't speak 
of the Church using the world's arms or weapons against the world. We speak of the Church wielding the Word, wielding lives of faith in God and fervent love toward one another, being patient and enduring things that we don't want to. This is seen as uh, we pray for and live according to God's will on earth. Again, thy will be done. You know, sometimes we speak of Jesus being the example of these things. Certainly, he's far more than an example, but it's not wrong to see him, in a sense, as a primary example of this petition, for he prays it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And that's a great comfort for us, that even our own flesh and blood Lord depends upon that petition and says, yes, God's will, the Almighty Father's will, is good and holy, whether he's the Father of the Only Begotten or whether he's the Father of his true adopted children. Nevertheless, he's a Father that we can trust. He's a Father that we can depend upon and love, that we can cheer on, and that we can know that he's going to vindicate our hope in him. Our hope will not be put to shame. You know, think of every child that always wants his dad to win, right? And it's always a sort of an uncomfortable thing when two dads are competing against one another and the two kids are sitting there, right? One son from one dad and one son from another dad. And one of the sons is going to be disappointed unless the fathers somehow manufacture the competition to end in a draw because the sons understandably want their fathers to win because they look up to them and they take pride in their dads. And though those earthly sons might be sometimes disappointed in their earthly fathers, and though sometimes the teenage son starts to become disappointed in his father because he starts to see that his father doesn't have all the answers, and his father sometimes shows his imperfection and his shortcomings and his sin, uh, and therefore sometimes disappoints. But there is no being disappointed by the promises of our Father in heaven that true Father who promises that his will will be done, and he will make sure that it's carried out through earthly means, vocational authorities, also through spiritual means, his divine care for us as his church. You talked in there about the Crusades and what Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and with regards to thy will be done. I also was thinking in the Garden of Gethsemane how Peter tries to pull out his sword and he lops off the, the soldier's ear, of course, right? And Jesus rebukes him. And he says, put that away. You know, if I wanted to, I could call down angels, right? And I think that's always a good reminder for us because yeah, maybe at times I over-identify with Peter, but I feel that tension within myself, right, to fight for this. And it's a way in which at times we can do the same thing that we rebuked last week's episode where we think it's up to us to do this, right? Jesus can handle this himself. And I think it's a good reminder for us that even as we confess the truth, we want to have right doctrine, and we can point out specifics where there is false doctrine that would lead us astray, that when we do that in love, we ought to do it also recognizing that God's will is done, even without our prayer, right? As it always kind of reminds us, but as it's lived out in us, that we do this as Jesus does, right? We trust that he does care for this. And so that's what we're going to pick up on the other side of the break as we continue looking here at this petition. What does God's care look like? How does he care for his will being done in the life of the believer and within his church here on earth? And that'll be where we pick up with our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal, and I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. 
You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our Catechized Life series with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And we were talking about the third petition just before break and how God's will is done, even without our prayers we talked about, and what that looks like. And then, Pastor Bestel, you led us to God's care, what he promises he will do according to his will. And so go ahead and pick up there and tell us, what does this care look like? Sure, that's a great question, because we've got this phrase in Luther's meaning, this idea of breaking and hindering every evil purpose. Well, okay, well, what does that look like? Luther hints in both catechisms that it really comes back to a defense of the first two petitions. Hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come. And that's true. This is God's good and gracious will, he says in his explanation, Luther says in his explanation. And by good there, we might understand not happy and gracious, but rather holy and gracious will, right? The, the word good doesn't always mean that it's going to make us feel good. It doesn't mean that it's always going to leave us feeling happy, but rather his good will, think back to one of our very first episodes. In fact, I think it was our first episode talking about the truth of the creation, that when God created it, it was very good. Everything was holy. Everything was perfect and pure. It doesn't necessarily mean when we read that word good or when we think of that word good, it doesn't mean that God is always going to make us feel happy about everything. It means that it is going to be his holy and gracious will. God is not just love in the sense of just giving you whatever you want, but he is holy. And defending his holiness is carrying out his goodness. And thus his will is not just to smother you with love, or let you do whatever you want to do, even if that's outside of his holiness, but rather it's to carry out his holy plans. Again, think of the divine service, which is best understood not by thinking of Jesus as my best friend, uh, sort of my warm and fuzzy special friend, but by thinking of the reverence needed to come before and be showered upon by the gifts of the Holy God. Right? We revere his name in the divine service precisely because he is coming to us right here and now, heaven on earth, in a way that is, as Luther said, inestimable, and it's infinitely better than what we could provide for, and it is therefore good. And so when we ask him to do his will, that doesn't mean that we're going to see it done in the way that we like. By all means, we desire his good will. We desire his gracious will. And if we want to know how that defense is carried out on earth, then we should look to those that God has placed in authority over us. In the divine service of the church, it's the pastors, right? St. Paul calls them bondservants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries. And remember what stewards do. You know, we used to call 
flight attendants, stewards, and stewardesses. Why? Because they safeguarded the treasures of the uh, you know the little uh, Coke cans and the uh, the the plain snacks, the pretzels and peanuts when we used to have those, or even the dinners way back when, when you actually got a full meal on the flights. And they would safeguard those before the flight so that people didn't hoard them. And then when it was the proper time, they would come and they would distribute properly the treasures, you know, that the flight had to offer the passengers. And that's how the stewards stewarded or the stewardesses stewarded the gifts of the plane flight. In the same way, the stewards of the mysteries are those who hand out God's holy and gracious will in the divine sacraments, the divine gifts of God and the divine service. Uh, You also have them being called ambassadors to us for Christ's sake. But also, so what is true in daily life, or in the life of the divine service, is also true as the church lives out daily life. And in daily life, you see God's will being done by faithful fathers and mothers, who, as you pointed out earlier, are grounding their children, for example, in devotions, in faithful living, in proper moral conduct, in a life according to the Ten Commandments. Faithful fathers and mothers, they actually do help, quote, hinder every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. And when they don't, look at how the generations have been absorbed by these things, right? We saw what we use as the close of the commandments there from Exodus 20, where God says, for the sins of the fathers, it's going to have ramifications on the third and fourth generation. When the fathers live in faith and raise the next generation in faith, the next generation, when they are old, will not depart from it. And so where we have faithful fathers and mothers, what a precious gift from above. Where we have unfaithful fathers and mothers, what a, what a tragedy for the life of the church, not only in this generation, but the life of the church for generations to come. And so where father and mother, faithful father and mother, need help in carrying out God's will, There's also the gift of government that God gives, who, as we hear in Romans 13, that government has the God-given responsibility to curb evil and to defend God's goodwill for his creation. As Luther says, if the will of evil and of the devil on earth, quote, were not broken and hindered, God's kingdom could not remain on earth nor his name be hallowed. In other words, this idea of coexisting doesn't work. We see that bumper sticker all the time, right? Coexist. And let's be clear what we mean by saying it doesn't work. We don't mean go harm your neighbor and raise violence against them. But we mean Christians cannot confess the faith while pretending to agree with the world. We cannot, in a sense, have our cake and eat it too. Christians must confess because the word confess is not a private matter of the heart. Right? That's not what it means to confess. To confess is something that happens with the tongue or with lives, which by definition then is going to be seen and heard by others. To confess is a public matter, a public matter of the voice and of daily life. And so sadly, how often we see people try to go along to get along and end up renouncing the faith. They're renouncing God's kingdom coming. They renounce God's name being hallowed because they say, you know what? I think I can navigate this so that not only is his will done on earth, but the world's will is done on earth. And then they end up having to give up one or the other, and they end up giving up God's will, which they had beforehand, but by the very fact that they wanted to try and compromise, by definition, all they can basically do is give up on God's will. 
And so they end up renouncing the faith. Or how often do we see entire congregations just want to be loved by the world, and so they give up their Lutheran identity? That won't work. Luther is attributed as saying a nice little pithy expression here, quote, peace where possible, truth at all costs. That's not a call to earthly war, but it is a call to the proper wielding of law and gospel, which is why C.F.W. Walther used very similar language in teaching seminarians the proper distinction of law and gospel for their sermons, because remember, sermons are meant to shape the daily lives of the hearer. Sermons are not just for faith's private ascent, just to meditate on in the heart, but it's also for faith's daily life confession with both voice and conduct. So this brings us again to that interesting relationship between the fourth commandment and what table it falls into. It seems to have one foot in the first table and one in the second. And even here in the Lord's Prayer, it seems to sort of transition us a bit. You'll notice that all the petitions up to this point include the term thy. And Luther very clearly sees that as a reference to the first table. Uh, In fact, he says in the large catechism, we have in these three petitions, in the simplest way, the needs that relate to God himself. Doesn't that sound like the first table of the commandments? Okay, everything that relates to our relationship with God, we have it not only in the first table of the commandments, but we have it now in these petitions that are, if you will, the thy petitions. But then the on earth of this petition, if we remember this term is so important to this petition, thy will be done on earth, that phrase sort of begins to transfer our attention to things below. And if we transfer our attention too quickly, then we get out of step with this petition and we think that the things below happen of their own accord. If we transition our attention properly, we see that the things below are meant to mirror and reflect and confess God's holy, good, and gracious will through his spiritual care and through the temporal care that he gives to the faithful through, again, in temporal care, vocational realities, daily bread realities, and then for spiritual care, the divine care realities of pastoral care, word and sacraments. And so you can see this transition with this phrase on earth, and you can see how, as we are sinners, we can pivot a little bit too quickly, or we could be guilty of pivoting too slowly and not thinking about our horizontal relationship with neighbor and only thinking about our vertical relationship with God. But Luther says here, in these first petitions, in the thy petitions, we now have all the needs that relate to God himself. But now as we transfer our attention, our pleas begin to shift from the thys of the first petitions now to the us and the our of the later petitions. And the same, of course, is true in the Ten Commandments. The first table, that vertical relationship that is ours with God. And then the fourth commandment is that pivoting, that transferring. And then the second table is that horizontal relationship between us and neighbor. And that's where we now go when we get to the fourth petition with this us all of a sudden. The first time we hear it in the prayer, all of a sudden this idea of petitioning something not only for ourselves as individuals, but for all of those around us in our relationship with one another. So that brings us then to the fourth petition, and I'll just go ahead and read it and our explanation from Luther's small catechism here. 
The fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. What is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. All right, thus far, the fourth petition. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us our catechesis lesson on this. A beautiful petition, a lot covered in there. But as I've said off the air, my parishioners and my dual parish would certainly know, I think sometimes we spend a little too much time on this petition. But go ahead and give us a right understanding of this. Yeah, you're right, Sean, that this is one that if there's an easiest one to teach, in a sense, it's this one, because everyone cherishes this one so much anyway, right? We all want God to give us our daily bread, and we're all fixated on that, as Jesus even says in that in those passages in uh, John chapter 6 or so, when he's going uh, back and forth across the lake, and he's fed the crowd, you know, the 5,000, he's fed them with the loaves and the fish, and then he says, you come chasing after me just because you want your fill of the bread. And that can be a danger for us when we love this petition so much, because we just desire it so much, or we're so afraid that we're not going to have our daily bread. So it's an easy one to teach in the sense that it's sort of inherently part of our thought process anyway. And yet it's also then, it can be a difficult one to teach in the sense of saying, how do we loosen the sinner's grip, sort of that white knuckled grip on thinking that everything hangs on this petition, right? And so that's some of the way to, I think, teach on this. We don't really need to laboriously go through and talk about God providing all of our stuff. Again, everyone already knows it. To be honest, we often doubt it when we don't get all of the hoarding of stuff that, as I like to use the term, the capital M me wants to get. And so that's really some of the wrestling with this petition and really with the whole second table of the commandments. Remember when I said in our overview of this relationship between the uh, Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer that this one petition really encapsulates and covers the entire second table of the commandments. Why do we murder? Why do we commit adultery? Why do we steal? Why do we give false testimony against our neighbor? Why do we covet everything that belongs to our neighbor? It's because capital M me selfishly doubts that he has everything he's supposed to have in terms of daily bread, and so he wants to take it into his own possession by his own force and might. So perhaps the simple points I'd make on this petition are, first, that this is truly a petition, and its meaning is truly a petition that point to God's provision for the whole world, and thus it continues that shifting focus of that phrase, on earth. And it's not a small point to say that this is for the whole world. Think of Luther's, the first line of Luther's meaning. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. Now, we would understand this as referring to people who are outside of the church, which is also a reminder that this petition is not about specifically about the life of the church as the previous petitions were. 
right? The previous petitions, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Those previous petitions, really the reality of those petitions, the answering of those petitions, the fulfillment of those petitions were basically found in the life of the church. But now with this petition, we notice, and that transition of the phrase on earth, and now with this petition and its meaning, we notice that we're really praying for everything that involves all people, whether they're believers or not believers. So I think that's the first simple point to make, is that we are really right in the breadbasket of the second table of the law. And so notice when we look at this then, what non-food items are included in this list of daily bread, because this again reminds us just how much this has to do with the whole world, with those who are not only the believing, but also, as Luther calls them, the wicked. And notice that all of these things that Luther lists here really are mirror images of the commandments. So as you go through this list, they're not necessarily in order, but all of the needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or or wife, devout children, and you go through that whole list, start picking that apart, and you'll notice that everything he lists has something to do with the second table of the commandments. So you've got clothing and shoes, house and home, land, animals, money, goods. That's seventh commandment stuff. You have a devout spouse and family. That's sixth commandment stuff. You have children, rulers, government. That's all fourth commandment stuff. Peace, health, self-control. That would be fifth commandment stuff in many ways. Good reputation would fall under the Eighth Commandment. You have good friends, faithful neighbors. Well, that's sort of Ninth and Tenth Commandment, right? The friends and neighbors who aren't going to covet your things so that you don't have to live life looking over your shoulder and wondering whether your friends and your neighbors are actually being honest with you. And so not that all of these things just neatly fit into one commandment. Some of them might overlap into other commandments, but you can see why Luther chooses the list of stuff that he does and how all of this stuff isn't just him randomly picking items out of the air, but him saying, look at how all of this is illustrated by the Ten Commandments. All of this is taught in the Ten Commandments and the second table of the commandments, and how when Jesus is teaching us to pray, He's teaching us to pray to trust our Heavenly Father so that we don't become the capital M me who says, I will become impatient with my God, and I will become my own God, and I will idolize mammon, and I will take it for myself. And this is the difficulty we often have with this petition. Uh, Luther uses the second table of the law to fill out the definition of daily bread. Again, as I've already mentioned, that we might see the relationship in the things of God not merely as vertical, but also as horizontal, not just in heaven, but also on earth. And again, not just in things of spiritual bread, but also in things of daily bread. I think sometimes the theologians might try a little bit too hard with this petition to spiritualize it in a sense, because they point out how, well, this could actually be uh, also a reference to the sacrament in some ways. Well, I suppose it could that could be included in this. It, I wouldn't say that it necessarily excludes those things, but is that really the main focus of this petition? I don't believe that it is. But rather because God created all people, we should expect all people to have daily bread, as God is not only the creator of heaven and earth, but also the provider for all of it. Christians ought not judge God's love for them 
buy daily stuff. Think of the prosperity gospel and how harmful it is because it misunderstands that this petition for daily bread, as we said, really is not narrowly focused on the life of the church. We just said that the first three petitions really are often fulfilled and seen in the life of the church proper. But then the prosperity gospel comes in and says, oh, you'll know that God really loves you if you get all your daily bread requests. And that prosperity gospel is what God really wants for you. But notice how it's transitioned this article back into and grouped it back in with the first articles into the spiritual well-being and the spiritual care of the church, rather than keeping it where it belongs, which is God's care of all people, whether believer or unbeliever. So you have to be very careful with that prosperity gospel, because all people, as God's creation, will be provided for as he sees fit, and therefore it's not a judgment on their salvation if they have more or less stuff. That really has nothing to do with the Messiah, which is Article 2, or the spiritual care of the Church, which is Article 3, but really has everything to do with Article 1, God over all things. And so even though we lament how it seems that the evil always seem to have their daily bread and their temporal pleasures far more than the Christian does, and that's actually a pretty common theme throughout the Scriptures too, is that, man, it always seems like the evil are doing better in daily life than the faithful and the devout are. Nevertheless, the scriptures say that as the faithless world rejects the Messiah, Article 2, and therefore also reject his Holy Spirit and his church, Article 3, then all of their earthly provisions in Article 1 will also eventually, according to God's timing and purpose, be taken from them. They will have their great reward on earth, And then rust and moth and thieves will come in and eat away what was theirs. You have all of those different reminders in the scriptures. The rich man who's the fool because he tries to store up everything in his barn, and then that night his life is required of him. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And what were those things? Those were all the things that all of the Gentiles chase after all of the daily bread stuff that the world is always clamoring about. And Christ says, now you focus on the life of the church. You focus on God caring for his dear children, and he will know how to care for you, not only in spiritual things, but also in temporal things. And so Christians do well to receive their daily bread with thanksgiving, that God is still faithful to his whole creation. This is a great reminder too, isn't it? God is faithful to his creation. He has not let it spin out of control. He hasn't said because of the fall, he hasn't just thrown up his hands and said, whatever, forget it. But he is faithful to his creation, and he makes sure that it rains when he wants it to rain, and he makes sure that the sun shines when he knows it's good for the sun to shine, and he cares for us, and he cares for his whole creation. As Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. That's God caring for his whole creation. How much more valuable are we than are those basic elements of the creation. And so every Christian should receive their daily bread with thanksgiving. But we ought never make the mistake of chasing after daily bread, for even the unbelieving have it, and they store up such things. But this prayer simply teaches us we don't don't need to chase after these things. We don't need to adore them, love them, idolize them. The Lord will always provide as he sees fit through the means that he sees fit. And those means even include our own labor. 
right? That's another thing to keep in mind and how this applies well to the Ten Commandments, to the table of duties. I do my labor and I do the work that God has given me to do, not for the question of what do I get out of it, but rather I should simply work for the benefit of my neighbor. I should work because God has given us to work. And yet through that work, he blesses us. And through that work, we end up having a quote-unquote paycheck that is temporal payment, to use the word, for our labor. And yet there's certain labor that doesn't ever get a paycheck, but that doesn't make it less important or less godly labor. Uh, My wife's uh, very faithful and loving care for our children, and she raises them up. She homeschools all six of them. She is constantly doing as much work, if not more, than I am doing. And yet she's not the one who gets the quote-unquote paycheck. And yet it's a Christian labor that we can do not only with love toward our neighbor, but with faith that God provides for us, sometimes through our own labor, sometimes through the labor of someone that we're intimately attached to, right? My husband brings home the paycheck while I labor at home, Uh, sometimes through the generosity of others who might not be part of our family, but they see that we're in need, and so they simply give of themselves, sometimes through the, the life of the church, a good Samaritan purse or something like that, in which God provides for us. So Christians ought also never be too proud to receive the care and the love of the church. Uh, I've sometimes had people say, gee, pastor, you know, I really don't want to take this because I, I really like to be the one to give. And I've reminded them, there is a season for everything. And sometimes we are in the season of needing the care and the love of the church. And sometimes we are in the season of being the one in the church who can provide the care and the loving for others within the life of the church. And so Christians should not be too proud to receive God's daily bread in whatever form he has planned to give it to us. It's a beautiful petition. It's a very simple petition. And yet it's one that, honestly, the Christian really struggles with because of our love of mammon. And if we would simply learn to live by the joy of this petition, that Jesus Jesus knows that we need daily bread. Think about that. He wouldn't teach us to pray this if he wasn't planning on giving it to us. If he didn't know our need, he wouldn't teach us to pray this. The very fact that he teaches us to pray this means he sympathizes and knows that we need it and that he also plans to give it. And so we can very joyfully depend upon God, not only for spiritual things, but for all of the daily bread needs for this body and life. That is very well said, and I would also add to it here as well. As I shared last episode with your teaching on the first petition, that as we think catechetically with the first petition, when we hear a pastor rebuking false teaching that would lead us astray, that we ought not get angry at him and think that he's condemning people or exalting himself or so forth. He's trying to faithfully live that petition out and hallowing God's name as we pray there. And I encourage the listeners to think about going to their pastor or others where they see that taking place and thanking them for living out that first petition. So I always like to say when it comes to this fourth petition too, that sometimes I don't think we think enough about this either. You know, we always fill up our prayer list in our churches with all sorts of what I would call fourth petition prayers, right? You know, what we want God to give us. And it's all right to pray for those things, especially when it comes to health and healing. He is our kind Heavenly Father. He loves that we come to Him and boldly ask of these things to Him and trust that He will give according to His good and gracious will. 
But how often do we do the other side of this where we say, God has granted me a fourth petition. I think I've shared off air with you, Pastor Bestel, and probably brought on the air before here as well, that I like to, uh, a lot of times when people, when I have friends and so forth that receive the gift of children, I say, ah, God has answered your fourth petition prayer and giving you a first article blessing, right? That's thinking catechetically. And maybe people look at me like I'm strange, and maybe I am, but I think is a right way that we can honor this as well. So think catechetically. And maybe I would just add that to all the excellent teaching that you gave there. So very excellent today, as always from you, Pastor Bestel, our catechist for this series, The Catechist Life. Next week, we will pick up with the fifth petition, continuing on here in the Lord's Prayer. So thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.